So, so that's kind of where we pick up. They go and say goodbye to Lydia and the other Christians that they've introduced to, to Jesus in that town. And then they, they hit the road. And that's where we pick things up in chapter 17, which says in verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a many uh, a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. I'm going to stop there for a minute and uh, point out that once again, we see Luke emphasizes that Paul, when he would come to town, he would go to his Jewish brothers first. That was his custom. He does it again here. And then, then he would go from there out to everybody else. And it's important for us to remember that God has never forgotten about his national people. Israel was his chosen nation. He's never forgotten his promises to them. He's never forgotten his love for them. He continues to minister to them today and want to pull them in. Uh, the good news is we just got grafted into this plant that God was growing. God, God has this plant of redemption that he's growing. And in his goodness, he said, you know what? Non-Jews can come and be part of this too. So if you're a, not a Jew and you're part of that plant, be thankful that, that God did this for us too. It's a really cool thing. But the Jews are still on his heart. And, and he still loves his people, and he still has a plan for them as well. We see Paul's method to win his Jewish brothers is mentioned here that he used the Scriptures to convince them that the Christ had to suffer and to die and to rise from the dead. And this would have been really strange for them to hear. There's nothing about what they, they thought at this time that that fit with. Um, the Old Testament is actually filled with references to it, but they didn't see him. They didn't, or when they did see him, they didn't know what they were saying. So you can kind of picture Paul maybe going through Isaiah 53 with these guys, or maybe Psalm 22, and, and showing them, look, this is where it talks about these things. See, they had no problem with the idea of a Messiah that would come and save them from their current woes. They're, they were in captivity by the Romans right now. And so the, the idea of a savior, a king that would ride into town and save the day, they wanted that. But they, they didn't really see this idea of needing a savior to come and remedy their sins. And that's really the, the, you know, the main thing they needed, but they weren't looking at it that way. And that, that thinking is still alive and well today. Most of us like the idea of like Jesus, like a genie in the bottle that would come and, and make our lives better and, and, you know, give us things we need. And, you know, that sounds great. You know, like a butler, you know, I'm a little cold, Lord, maybe you could bring me a blanket and I'm, I'm a little, you know, that's kind of the way we think of it. The problem is we're not desperate for a savior. When you begin to understand your sinfulness and your true position before God, you need a Savior, and that's who Jesus is. So verse 2 mentions that, that Paul goes to the synagogue on three separate uh, or three Sabbath days. It, it doesn't mean that they were consecutive. It could mean that, but it, it could be that it was just three different times because they were in this town for quite a long time. Um, they had ample time to tell others about Jesus because it tells us in verse 4 that a, a great many were persuaded to believe and it included Jews, Greeks, and, and some of the women of the town, which is great for the church. If you start, you go into a town and you start to see a lot of people coming, it's great for the church. Not so great for the Jewish uh, synagogue people. Uh, they didn't like it at all. In fact, it's, it, we're told that they, were je they became jealous. And we're not told exactly why, but you can imagine if you start to see your numbers decreasing and, and Paul and Silas's numbers increasing and your finances decreasing and, you know, that happening and your, your influence and your, you know, control over things start to go down, 
Jealousy kind of makes sense. They would have felt threatened by this. And, and jealousy and envy are powerful emotions. They can bring out the worst in us. And we see that here in verse 5. It says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, I love that phrase. I don't you know. Some of you guys know, know what that means exactly. Cause you would like, if somebody went into town and wanted to find the rabble, they'd, they'd come knocking on your door, right? Uh, they, they took some of the wicked men of the rabble and they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So in in their jealous frenzy, the Jews form this plan. And their plan is, we're going to accuse the Christians of stirring up all kinds of trouble. And step one of their plan was to go out and stir up all kinds of trouble that they could then blame them for. That's kind of funny. Uh, they obviously weren't worried about, you know, their town, you know, having trouble stirred up in their town because they were willing to do it themselves. They used deception and violence and false accusations and extortion to try to stop the other side from being successful. And somehow they, they pretend like they're on the moral high ground when they do it. We have a way of doing these things. We know we, when we want our agenda to advance, we can justify really bad behavior to make it happen. And that's exactly what they do. They round up the rabble and they, they form this mob full of town derelicts. And then they just basically go say, tear up the town. And when you're done, we're going to point at Paul and Silas and say, look at what they've done to our town. Can you believe it? That's, that's their plan. And it's funny because this idea of manufacturing fear and hysteria is something leaders do to kind of move us around like pawns on a, on a chessboard. It kind of irritates me how effective it is with people. I watch people listen to the news or listen to a, a talk show host or whatever it is, and pretty soon they're running around like the sky is falling and they're freaking out. And we don't need to do that as Christians. You know, Who, what do we trust in? Who do we trust in? Some trust in chariots and horses. We trust in the living God. We don't need to get spun around the axle every time somebody, a news report comes down or somebody tells us something. We can, we can take a breath and say, you know what? I know who's on the throne. I know who's in control. But they use this to try to get everybody freaked out, and it works. And just like today, they also spin the information in a way that advances their own agenda, like I said. You know, they're, they're, they're going to make this, you know, how news do, people do this kind of thing. I can almost picture like the news report, you know, I'm standing outside the home of Jason, a local man who was arrested today for aiding and abetting a group of, you know, fringe radicals called Christians. Uh, this group of extremists are on a, a mission to recruit as many people as they can to take down Caesar and, and replace him with their own King Jesus. And, and this isn't the first town they've targeted. There's like a string of towns that they've gone through and they've done this in. And one witness was even quoted as saying, these men are turning the world upside down. You know, you can picture why the authorities got upset. They're like, these guys, you know, of course they're upset. This sounds really bad. Let's, you know, down with the Christians. Let's go get these guys. Let's get them out of our town. But none of it was really true. <laughs> it's not what Paul and Silas were doing. They weren't trying to overthrow the government. Christians are called to submit to the governing authorities. We're called to live peaceful lives when possible. We're called to be good citizens in our community. I would even say the best citizens in our community. So what Paul and Silas were doing was they were just trying to make sure people were ready for a coming king. 
so that when he came, they would be friends with this coming king and be able to come into his kingdom as friends and not enemies. That's what they're doing. They're not worried about Caesar or anything else. But it gets the people upset, and they, they grab Jason. You know, poor Jason, he's just like, you know, he gets drugged into the town, and, and then he has to, like, pay bail money. He has to post bail somehow to make sure that they'll let him go. So that And, and it sounds like they made him uh, assure them that they would, his friends would leave town because verse 10 says, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And then I love verse 10. It says, and when they arrived, when they got to Berea, where do they go? is when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And I'm thinking, okay, guys, I mean, let's like what's happened in every other town you've gone to when you go to the Jewish synagogue. But again, who do they trust in? They go there out of obedience to God, not afraid, knowing what's probably going to happen, but they go there anyway. You know, getting run out of town like they did, that that could seem kind of like the enemy won. That could be defeating and sometimes we do this thing where we, we look at circumstances instead of the big picture and we feel defeated in life. But this wasn't a, this wasn't a, a loss at all. This was a huge win. They go into Thessalonica, they plant seeds, they water seeds, they harvest seeds, right? If you think about what happens there, they've got a group of Christians now in this town that Paul will write two letters to soon. A church forms there. This wasn't a, a bad thing at all. This was a win. And if you, if you look at what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 about this church, it's really cool. In verse 8, he says this to that town. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking to us about it and had the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you were looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, from whom, or whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. This is what this town's doing right now. So instead of Paul going around and doing this, now the whole town is doing They're like little Pauls. Remember that commercial from the 70s? You know, they told two friends, and they told two friends, and so on and so on. I don't know why I think of that stuff, but it pops in there. That's weird. This is, this is amazing what's happened. And it's quite an endorsement that Paul gives this town that they had to flee from in the middle of the night for their own lives. So Paul and Silas arrived safely in Berea and once again head straight to the synagogue. But the reception they received from their Jewish brothers was a little different than what they've what they'd come, you know, were used to. Verse eleven says, Now these Jews were more more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Uh, the word noble there doesn't mean that they were more worthy than those in Thessalonica. It indicates that they were more open. They weren't threatened by new information because they knew they had the word of God to compare it to. So they willingly received what Paul taught about Jesus being the Messiah. You know, Paul goes in and says, no, the Christ had to suffer. He had to, he had to die. He had to be, you know, he had to raise again. And they go to the scriptures daily and examine the scriptures to find out if this is true. And I, I kind of think this would have been so cool to watch them do this, where they, they flip open Isaiah 53 and they go, holy cow, or whatever they said back then. Look, it, it's right there. It's right there. It's like, there's, there's the Messiah. You know, he had to be bruised for our iniquities, crushed for our sins. I mean, it's all there. And, and, and they believed it. Verse 12 says, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. By the way, this is the second time Luke adds in that there were these women of high standing who believed. 
And, and I love this. Luke, this is a big deal. This is not normal. Christianity is like very favorable towards women compared to other religions. I don't know if you've ever looked at other countries where there's no real strong Christian influence in the way women are treated, but this is huge. We're equal in, in Christ. The Bible says that there is no longer male or female. We are one in Christ. And so this is such a cool thing. And, and Luke knows it. That's why he's pointed out. It's like, man, women are coming to Christ. They're part of the church. They're, they're, this is a big deal. Well, the party in Berea was fun while it lasted, but verse 13 then tells us that when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. This is like a 50-mile jaunt, you know? It's like if I'm going to walk 50 miles because of, you know, something, you got to really care about it. These guys hated what Paul was doing, and so they, they make the trip to come and stir things up. Verse 14 says, Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So that's where we leave the narrative today, uh, but there's two things I want to focus in on from this, and they are these. The first one is they eagerly examined the Scriptures for truth, and the second one is they turned the world upside down. So the first one is that they eagerly examined the Scriptures for truth. Uh, today, if you're called a Berean, it's a compliment. If somebody says, oh, you're a Berean, it means that you take what you hear, examine the Scriptures to make sure it's so, which is a really good thing to do, by the way. So these guys heard what Paul said, and before just outright rejecting it, that they went and tested it. And I don't know if you've ever run into somebody whose mind is made up regardless of what information you bring them, but they're really frustrating people. You know, you can have like the whole thing laid out, and they're like, no, nope, the earth is flat. They're like, no, it's not. It's, it's not at all. Um, I think they refer to these people as stubborn. I've, I've heard about them. I know uh, there's a man I know. It's not me. I am stubborn, but I don't. It's, this, isn't, this isn't a clever way of saying me. Uh, there's a man I know who I'm, I greatly respect, but he told me once that before he went to seminary, seminary is where you go to learn your theology. He said, before I went to seminary, I made up my mind uh, about my theology, and I wasn't going to change it. I remember thinking, don't waste your money and your time going to, you know, that's expensive to go to seminary if you're not going to change it. Now, the good news was his theology was pretty good already, so it wasn't, a, a, you know, too dangerous. But I just remember, you know, this, this idea that we need to be teachable. We always need to be students of God's Word. We always need to be willing to learn. There are some things that we, we can't waver on, we have to be convinced of, and we have to hold fast to for sure. But I hope that we all have a teachable and humble spirit, because as much as I hate to admit it, I've been wrong a couple of times. Right? No, it's true. <laughs> At least twice today. I remember when I went to Bible college, um, I went to a, a class uh, that was on end times, which is like Revelation, uh, the apocalypse kind of stuff. And the way they taught the class was basically like this. Uh, here is one view that's really good that all the smart people believe. And then here are like three really dumb views that only stupid people believe. So it was like, boy, you know, when you really weigh it out, guess which one I wanted to go with? I went with that one. You know, duh, I'm going to go with the smart people view. Well, I held this view uh, for years until a couple of brothers challenged me to search the scriptures and to defend my view. But they asked me not to do it with preconceived notions. And I'm not trying to change anybody's end times views here. That's not the point of this. This is just a good example. 
So in other words, don't, don't go in trying to support your view. Don't go to scriptures saying, I'll find it here. Go to the scriptures and say, what, what am I going to, what am I going to find here? So think about what the author intended, what the original readers would have understood, things like that. And I was surprised and a little ashamed at how quickly my view kind of crumbled. And even the verses that I used to go to that I thought defended my position, I read them kind of with that little seed of knowing that maybe I'm, maybe I'm off. And it was like, well, I think they actually, they, they say the opposite of what I was hoping they would say. So just having that little kind of seed of let me check for sure helped me to, to see what I had been unwilling or unable to see before. And that's true of uh, when I became a Christian. There were a lot of social and moral issues that I was I had my mind made up on. Abortion is one that comes to my mind. I used to think, why do people get so mad about this? Who cares? Let them do what they want to do. Why do you, you know? And then I become a Christian and my heart begins to break. And I don't even know why exactly, but something changed in me to where I started to see we're created in the image of God. Life is valuable. How dare you? You know, I mean, I got all of a sudden, I'm like getting emotional about this thing. Something changed in me. When we become Christians, we have all kinds of ideas and worldviews and convictions, and we need to be willing to measure them against the standard of truth, which is God's word. God's word is like a, a level or a plumb line that shows us what is right. I don't know if you've ever hung a picture, but I'm, I'm, I'm great at it. I'll hang a picture and I'll put it up there and I'll stand back and I'll be like, that's straight. Then my wife will come in and be like, that is not even close to straight. Like, no, it's straight. It's right. I know it's right. Well, let's put a level on it and see. It's like, dang, it's not right at all. I'm, you know, but, but it looked right to me until I put a level on it. And that's what God's word does for us. It's a level that shows us, no, you're off. You're way off. This is what's right. And the Bereans were commended because if they found something the Bible taught, they said, that's right. And they threw out the other stuff and they followed God's word. So being a Berean impacts what we believe, but it also should impact the way we live. And that's so important. James says it this way in, in James chapter one, he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away at once and forgets what it was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer but a, who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So this is a really easy picture for us to think about. If I woke up this morning before coming to preach in front of all of you and I stood and looked in front of the mirror and I have a cowlick where my hair likes to stick up over this way after a good night's sleep and maybe I had some, you know, mustard from what I ate last night on my face and some spinach in my teeth and, you know, crusty things here and there. And I saw all that and went, man, you're a mess this morning. All right, hon, I'm going to church. I'm going to preach. That would be weird. And that's what this is. This is, you know, you would do something about those things, right? You would want to do something about them. And that's what God's word does for us. It provides an accurate reflection of what we're really like. But it doesn't do us any good if we don't do something about what it shows us. That's the important part. God is gracious in showing us things little by little. And I appreciate that. He doesn't show us all at once. I'm so glad I thought about that. If he were to show me all at once what I'm like, I think I would just explode, like my boots would just be smoking and I'd be gone because it would be overwhelming. But little by little, graciously, lovingly, kindly, like a good father, he just works with us. So there's a blessing in doing things God's way. 
And that's what this is telling us. I see so many Christians ignoring God's design and ignoring God's desire for them. And then they wonder, why don't I feel close to God? You know, where is he in this? Or why aren't things working out for me the way they should? Why do I feel like I'm always kind of pushing against a stiff breeze in life? And I think this is part of it. And I hear people say, well, I know his word says this. I know his word says he wants it, but I'm going to do this instead. You know, that doesn't really apply to me. My circumstances are different. I hear that so many times we talk to people. It's like, well, this is our counseling session. All right, this is what you're doing. Do you agree? Yes. This is what God's word says. Do you agree? Yes. Are you willing to do it? <laughs> right? And that's where it starts to be like, well, we prayed about it. You know, well, it's like, well, sometimes you don't even have to pray about it. Just read what it says and you'll know the answer. Do what it says. It's easier said than done. I know that too. God's word, the Bible says, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It, it's meant to protect us and to, to lead us to life and to joy and to, to peace and blessing and things like that. When you stray off the lighted path, what happens? Bad things happen, right? You, you start to get into dangerous spots. So the idea here is that it's okay for us to listen to ideas, discussions, concepts, things like this. Be open-minded, be teachable, have a teachable spirit, but hold it up to the grid of God's Word. And if it aligns with God's Word, we do it. We keep it. We apply it. If it doesn't align with God's Word, it's false, and we reject it, and we change course. That's what a Berean does, and that, that's what we should do as Christians. And I think I imagine what the church would look like if everybody who named the name of Christ did this, and I'm including myself in that because I don't always do this, be a much different looking place. And it wouldn't look so goofy. There are things happening in churches today that if they would just be a Berean, you wouldn't see half the stuff. This is a gross story, but I'm going to tell you anyway because it's just, there's a pastor in, in Ghana, I think is where it was, uh, a church in, in Africa. This guy bathed in front of his church in, in gym shorts, but got a, in a barrel, bathed in the congregation, and then told his church, if you drink the bathing water, you'll receive a spiritual blessing. And they did. And not only, he even let them bottle it and take it home for the week so that the bacteria could really begin to grow because they would then they would have more spiritual blessing. And I'm thinking, be a Berean for Pete's sake. Don't do that. And, and the good news is, guys, whatever you hear from us preaching up here, if it doesn't, if it doesn't square with this, toss it out. We are accountable to you. What we teach and what we bring, you guys need to, not, not get to, need to go back to the Scriptures and check to make sure it's so. Okay, so that's the first one. Sorry about the gross picture, but that's amazing. That's like a Babylon Bee article. I thought I read it, and I thought, that's not real. And it's real. Weird. Second one is this. They turned the world upside down. You know, it's funny how you can hear that, and, and it, it can sound like a negative thing or a positive thing, depending on which side you're on. Right. So when the, when the Jews said it to these guys, they're turning the world upside down. They were like these jerks. You know, they didn't, it wasn't a compliment. But when Paul and Silas heard it, they were like, what did they say about us? They're turning the world upside down. It's like, dude, you know, this is like, yes, that's pretty cool. It's quite a statement to make, too, when you think about it, turning the whole world upside down. Now, the Jews were being a bit overly dramatic because they wanted to get these guys in trouble. But but the truth is, uh they were. Christianity changed the world completely. What started out as a little ripple 2,000 years ago has literally encompassed the entire globe 
and changed everything. It's amazing to think about. So the question is, how did they do it? How do you, how does one turn the world upside down? That can't be an easy thing to do. So, you know, was it like a hostile takeover by a massive army where they came in and forced everybody to comply? No, it was peaceful. Was it like a, this, this great political reform where they, they voted in the right people and implemented the right policies and passed the right laws and then over time it all? No, it wasn't that. Was it like a carefully implemented propaganda program where they came in slowly and introduced their beliefs you know, into TV shows and music and movies, and then over time nobody noticed and everybody accepted it as okay? No, that's not what happened either. Those are all effective ways of getting things done, but that's not how they turned the world upside down. What they did was they engaged individuals with a message about a man named Jesus, a Savior who came to die for sinners, who traded places with sinners, went to the cross, suffered, died, was buried, and rose again, victorious over sin and death. And if you would place your faith and trust in Him, you'll be forgiven and you'll be granted entrance into His kingdom. That's what they preached. They preached Christ crucified and it turned the stinking world upside down. That's amazing. And I think, nah, it can't be that simple. But guess what? You know what turned my life upside down? That. Completely. 1986, 19 years old, everything got turned upside down for me. I, I, met, I, met, I met a God who loved me. Still blows my mind. <laughs> Sorry, I cry. <laughs> she, she even brought me tissues, but I didn't take them. I met a God, a God who loved me and was willing to send his son to suffer and die in my place. And it wrecked me in a good way. It's crazy. Some of the tools that they used are mentioned in, in verses 2 through 4, and they're not what you'd expect. It says they proclaimed, they reasoned, they explained, they proved, and they persuaded. It just means they talked to people. They talked to people about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. They preached the gospel. Those words speak of investment, though, by the way. We need to, we need to invest in God's word. And we need to invest in people's lives. And both of those things take time. If we're going to have a dialogue with people about these things, we need to know our word. And we need to be willing to communicate it. And I didn't say able. I said willing. Because I found that if you store God's word in your heart, when the time comes for you to talk to somebody, it just starts coming out. Stuff starts happening. Things, things work. So we have to be willing to communicate it. And I found that a lot of Christians don't, what they think is communicating the gospel isn't communicating the gospel. So some people think that, you know, if somebody sneezes and, and you say, God bless you, that they've taken part in the Great Commission. That, that's not it, guys. You can't just walk by somebody and say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and expect salvation to occur. It's not the gospel. There's an old saying, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. And I like to say it. It just means talk is cheap. It means actions speak louder than words. And I understand the sentiment of what it's saying but don't misunderstand. The gospel is words. It's a message. It's not, you know, our actions can draw people so that we can preach to them the gospel, but, but our actions aren't going to save somebody. Paul would later say in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That means I'm not, I'm not going to shy away from it. I'm not going to leave it out. Why, Paul? Because, he said, it's the message that contains the power of God to save people. 
Now, the truth is, it's not easy to share the gospel because you're telling somebody you're a sinner who's not okay with God. You're on the wrong side of God's wrath right now. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to tell somebody that. But sometimes that's the most loving thing you can do. I, I just We went to a meeting in Bend. Uh, there's a pastor's meeting, and I want to be careful not to say anything bad here. Uh, but there was a group that came to, to tell us kind of what their ministry was about. Really good ministry, really good group. But one of the things they told us at that meeting was we don't explicitly share our faith. We just love people. And we believe that that love will, will open the door for them to meet Jesus. And I thought, okay, I get that. Um, it's a way for people to see that, that what is, what's going on is real. But if you don't ever connect the dots between your love and, and who Christ is and what he's done, you've missed the opportunity. And I would even go so far to say if all we do is give somebody a, a warm coat and a nice meal and pat them on the head and say, I love you and send them off. They're not prepared to meet Jesus with that. That's not enough. We need to tell people the truth. It is the most loving thing we can do. We need to do it in a humble way, in a loving way, but we can't miss that. So they turned the world upside down by telling people who Jesus was and what he accomplished for them through the cross. But that's how they did it. But how many people, how many people did it take to do it? Surely this had to be a mass effort, you know, a lot of folks involved in this. And the truth is, we know from this story that there's four guys. Paul, okay, it's Paul, granted. Silas, he's a prophet, good dude, I'm sure. Luke, he's a doctor who's just writing stuff down for these guys. And Timothy, who's just an apprentice along for the ride right now. Those four guys. Uh, John Wesley once said this, he said, Give me 50 men who love nothing but God and fear nothing but sin, and I'll change the world. And I read that, and I think that's super inspiring, except for this, that I don't love nothing but God, and I don't fear nothing but sin. I wish those things were true about me, but they're not. But when I read the book of Acts, I see this. Give me four crazy dudes that are filled with the Holy Spirit and armed with the message of the gospel, and God will turn the world upside down. And that I can deal with. That's something I can get behind. And, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, but, you know, the door isn't a, a church that's very significant. We don't have a lot of... we have. Regular people, broken people, you know, this is this is who we are. We don't have any bells and whistles. We don't, um, a lot of churches attract people with all the, the big show and all that. We don't have any of that stuff. But you know what we do have? We have a message that can turn a sinner into a saint. And that's powerful. That means that we have the power to turn the world upside down. And it's not us, it's him. But that message will wreck people's lives in a good way. When I think about this idea of turning things upside down, it's actually kind of wrong um, thinking. And, and the funny thing is, you know, as a Christian, as a non-Christian, most of my life, I looked out and everything just seemed like the way it was. It's the way it, it seemed right, normal. You know, when I became a Christian, everything looked upside down and backwards. And the funny thing is, I was never a science nerd, so bear with me. But um, do you remember that thing you learned in science as a kid that when we look at something, it's upside down and our brain flips it around? I mean, that's that's pretty pretty cool to think about in light of what we're talking about here. God has designed things in a way that when we see it, it's upside down, and, and then our brain has to flip it around so that it's right side up. And if you don't believe me, if you poke the lower, like your lower eyelid, don't stick your finger in your eye. Some guy's like trying to sue me at the other church now because I, yeah, if you poke yourself in the lower eyelid, you'll see a little black dot on the opposite side. Just kind of poke underneath, and the black dot will appear on the opposite side with a little ring around it. You can do it. It's okay. Nobody's going to look at you. It's because the image gets flipped around. 
It's weird. But then you start realizing what God's doing in this thing. For me, it's like, you know, the fall caused everything to, you know, good looks bad and right looks wrong and evil, you know, looks all, everything is completely upside down until you hear the gospel. And then something happens to us where everything gets flipped around. So these guys weren't turning the world upside down. They were turning the world right side up. And that's what the gospel does for us. I love this message that can fix a broken person, that can give somebody hope that had no hope and that can secure a person's eternal future. Uh, If you don't know this message completely yet, if you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior, today's the day of salvation. I would encourage you guys not to leave here today without talking to one of us, please. And if you know people out there right now that don't know this message yet, congratulations. You're an ambassador for Christ, and you're a minister of reconciliation, and you get to take that message out. Um, if you're shy and you, and you hate doing that thing, at least drag him in here, please. All right. Uh, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for these accounts in the book of Acts that, that we see these guys going on these adventures, Lord. And we don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to sit idly by and do nothing when there's work to do. So, Father, we, we, we know that you will use, can use anybody. And we pray that you would use uh, the door in this community, in the other community, Lord, to bring many to you. Thank you again so much, Lord, that you sent your son to suffer and die for us. It it, it should blow our minds every day. Help us to be thankful and grateful, Lord, and to walk worthy of this calling that we've received. In Jesus' name, amen.